right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me as always, Gabe Gums. Today we have an awesome guest. His name is Stuart Brotman. Stuart, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really uh, were excited to have you on and excited to talk about your new book. I'm excited to be here. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, so let's let's start the show off with telling us a little bit about yourself before we get into your book. Well, I've been involved in privacy virtually all of my professional career. Uh, I was one of the founders of the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which was an agency, still is, of the Department of Commerce. It's the executive branch agency in charge of telecommunications and information policy. Uh, We were given that name, NTIA, National Telecommunications and Information Administration. And everyone knew what telecommunications was, but very few people knew what information was or why you would have a government agency involved in that. And so it was quite interesting that we actually got to help invent the field, namely to try to think about what policy aspects of information would be things that the executive branch and the president and others would be interested in. And it turns out there was a lot. And obviously, since the founding of the agency, there's been extensive involvement, not just in terms of NTIA, but obviously the federal government. So uh, then I became involved uh, in the private practice of law. Uh, I worked for a large uh, international law firm, and that law firm represented Rolls-Royce, among others. And Rolls-Royce was basically a manufacturer, not just of automobiles, but did jet engines and parts and a variety of things, and had a number of facilities around the world, obviously had uh, dealerships in the U.S., And in the 1990s, uh, the European Union, for the first time, issued a directive on what was called transborder data flow, transferring data between Europe and outside. This will probably sound familiar because now we have GDPR, which is essentially a child of the original directive. Uh, And so I became the outside counsel for Rolls-Royce dealing with this very nascent area called data protection and cross-border traffic. And so I I began to advise in that area. And Rolls-Royce was a great client because they had many data protection issues. I also worked on probably one of the first corporate email policies because they were just starting with email at the time. And they didn't have any protocols for how people could transfer email, what you could include in email, what were attachments, all of that stuff. So that, that was a, a great opportunity. Uh, and, and then I've been teaching for a number of years, uh, including spending most of my teaching career at Harvard Law School. And I taught entertainment and media law, and there were so many aspects of privacy related to entertainment media, including paparazzi, obviously, sort of conventional privacy. And then, of course, as we get into social media, a variety of privacy-related aspects. So that's all sort of a a preface to what I've done in the past year. So I was awarded a fellowship at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington and began began that last Labor Day. And for those of you who don't know anything about the Wilson Center, it's the only think tank that's funded by Congress. 
and it doesn't have any sort of political or ideological agenda because obviously it's out there representing all political views. And uh, basically the Wilson Center has about 300 staff people, but every year they select a group of fellows. In my cohort, my class, there were 17 fellows. And I was in the Science and Technology Innovation Program and was the first fellow ever appointed at the Wilson Center just to focus on digital privacy policy. So it was a little bit like swimming in the ocean. Every day I would wake up and think about privacy and talk to people. And the Wilson Center gave me access to everyone from the White House down. So I dealt with people, obviously, in government, but I dealt with people in the private sector. I dealt with other think tanks and academics and civil society people. So I, I got what I call a 360-degree view of this entire area, which was my intent, because so much of privacy discussions tend to be very siloed. People really get into the weeds of a GDPR or CCPA or yeah. particular aspects. And not that I didn't want to get into the weeds, but I also wanted to see the, you know, the proverbial forest as well. And so uh, during that time, as I said, I met with just about everyone and you know, had a number of confidential conversations. I wasn't doing this as a journalist. I was doing this as someone who came from a policy background. And then, of course, COVID hit. And that was in March. The Wilson Center physically shut down. I continued to work remotely. And the fellowship ended right before Memorial Day. And during the period I was there, I had written 36 articles dealing with various aspects of digital privacy. And so I thought maybe now that the fellowship is over, perhaps it would be good to review those essays that I've written, those articles, uh, and then to have them collected in a book, and also to have an introduction which would reflect on COVID as well as everything else, and to get a great forward written, which was done by the former chairman of the FCC, Newt Minow. So that is the book, and it's called Privacy's Perfect Storm, digital policy for post-pandemic times. And about a third of it literally covers the period when we all went into hiding and were working remotely. And so I deal a lot with issues related to COVID as well as some of the other issues that preceded it. So I really started from, you know, when the GDPR was enacted in May of 2019, that's what I consider sort of the beginning of the perfect storm. And then you add on to that what's happening in the states, like California with CCPA. And then, of course, what was happening in the 116th Congress, where we had four bills introduced and two discussion drafts. And now, layered on top of all of that, is the world of COVID. And wow. so what I, I also want to do in the book is not just sort of chronicle that history but to look ahead, what are we going to be doing? There's there's so much to unpack in there, and, and I want to get to the book in, in some detail, uh, especially the, 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 the writing of it, although I will say that writing 36 articles and then putting them together, that's cheating. It's not fair. you got to sit down and wreck your brain for three years, come up with nothing, and then write a book. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but what was it about the, the Woodrow Wilson Institute that uh, – made them decide that 
we need to have someone inside of this 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 think tank thinking about privacy. What was the what was the inflection moment for them to 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 actually? Well, I think the inflection moment is the fact that there's a program within the Wilson Center which is science and technology innovation. And clearly, when you look at science and technology innovation, important aspect of that is the collection and storage and transmission of data. So, uh, you know, the other aspect of the Wilson Center, given that it's in Washington, given its close connection to Congress, is thinking about this not in a sort of an academic or theoretical sense, but thinking about the policy implications of it. So I think there was a really good fit between my policy background and my prior work in the area and their interest in having this be part of their science and technology innovation portfolio. And so then the work that comes out of that, how does it get into practice? Does it inform, uh, does it at that point inform policies? Will we see it show up in things like CCPA uh, and technologies? What happens to that work? Well, part of the reason for doing the book now is to essentially have everything collected in one volume. So hopefully congressional staff people, people in the White House, people in state legislature, companies. So I want to try to have this book out there as widely as possible for the purpose of getting the ideas out there. And to some extent, I want to start some new conversations around this area. I think, again, when you're in a silo, a lot of the conversations tend to be sort of the same discussion that takes place over and over uh, and I think there are broader ways to look at this. That's sort of my idea of this 360 degree. Let's try to broaden the conversation before we deepen the conversation. And is there any idea in particular that you re- you feel s- super passionately about that, that you, you really want to get out there that's in the book? Yeah, I think uh, a couple. Uh, one is what I call privacy at the kitchen table. And this was a more abstract notion between before COVID-19, but the idea is that we're all at our kitchen tables now or our living rooms or dining rooms, and most people are collected now as families living together, and they probably never had real serious discussions about how they're using their various devices and various networks and what uh, protections they have or lack of protection they have. And of course, now we have the melding of work and being at home. So this is just a perfect time to have what I call these kitchen table conversations. So typically, what are kitchen table conversations? There are things that affect our lives. There are things like getting a job or going to school or having medical services. But all of that now sits on the digital platform. So it's really difficult to have any conversation about other kitchen table aspects without having a conversation about digital privacy. So that's a real central aspect, and that connects back into policy because most of what we've seen in the policy environment so far has been top-down. So it means that people, legislators, and their staffs, they sit down and say, let's try to write a bill. But they really are not, and obviously they're getting input from the stakeholders, from companies lobbyists and people like that. But I'm not aware that when people are out on the campaign trail, when they're holding town halls, for example, I've never seen a town hall where people from the community are there and 
the candidate is asking about digital privacy. Seems like an obvious topic. So now that we're in an election season, one thing I would love to see as these town halls take place, and of course, they're taking place on virtual platforms now, I'd like to see candidates, and these are ones who are in office or ones who are aspiring to be in office, say, let's have a conversation about digital privacy. If you're sitting in one of those town halls talking to, to either of the candidates, what's the one question you ask them? Well, I wouldn't ask the question. I would have them ask the question to the audience or say, these are areas that we're interested in. So part of it is just hearing from our elected representatives or people who want to be in office to say, we recognize this as a kitchen table issue. But this, as I said, so much of this right now is inside baseball. It's what particular provision is in a particular piece of legislation. As you know, we have the Proposition 24, which is coming up in California. That proposition on the ballot is 52 pages. And so the average voter is not going to be familiar with that. And clearly the candidate on the campaign trail is not going to be raising that. I think they really, really need to say, we recognize privacy is at the kitchen table. Yeah. We want to have the conversation with you, just as we're talking about education and healthcare and jobs. And so then let's, let's turn it on, on, on its head then. Let's say you are advising, again, either I candidate. What, what do you tell them that they should have us thinking about at the kitchen table? Is it our use of social media? Is it, uh, is, is it, is it taking further ownership of our, our data out, out of the hands of corporations? What, what, what is it? It's a great question. I, I think it should be a more holistic discussion. And by that, I mean not just focusing on particular pieces of legislation. So, you know, when we look at other areas that we've been through as a nation, where we've had to deal with sort of a major public policy issue, we see that Government can go so far in helping to resolve that, but there need to be social and cultural issues that are put into play. So let me give you a quick example. So uh, driving under the influence, alcohol consumption while people are driving, uh, that has been historically a major cause of death in this country, a major problem that really only came to light probably in the past 20 years or so, where we as a country recognize this is a serious problem in a variety of different ways. So clearly the government got involved. We've had uh, the raising of the drinking age. We now have a national standard for blood alcohol levels. But the government, the federal government, could only do so much. Local governments needed to allocate money so they could give breathalyzers to police forces, because it wouldn't be good to say we have a blood alcohol level if we couldn't measure it. And even there, that necessarily wouldn't go far enough. And so we had new groups like MAD, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, who began to organize in communities. We have public service campaigns. We had the private sector come forward with ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft. So that if someone is at a bar now, it's a natural thing for someone to say, you know, you probably shouldn't be driving, we'll just call you or get an Uber or Lyft. So there have been a variety of dimensions that are put to the problem. It's 
what's called a multidimensional approach. And we've seen this in a variety of areas. That's one illustration. Tobacco use is another. But it seems that you could apply the same model of multidimensional. And once you do that, then you have a better idea of how capable government can be in controlling some of these issues and what other aspects can be dealt with outside of a law or regulation. So let me ask you a question, maybe a little charged. That proposition in California, it's rather large, it's filled with all kinds of legalese. Would you support some kind of a rating system? And these things are so arbitrary. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, I, I find that a lot of, of, of the voting public appreciates them. That kind of scores or ranks individual policymakers and how they stack up against privacy policies, which is to say, you know, candidate A supports these measures that would really protect our privacy. Candidate mm-hmm. B, on the other hand, is all in favor of selling my data to the next social media uh, platform. Um, would that be helpful in, in informing those kitchen table conversations? It might be, and we have in a variety of other areas. As you know, people in Congress now get rated by all sorts of organizations. Right. But we don't have a single organization that is doing it, and I think some of them may not want to be involved because they're also lobbying Congress for some sort of relief, and you know, you don't want to give them a bad grade and then walk in the next day and say, here's what we would like. So it, it may be more difficult, but... Again, the more information that the public has about this, and I think if you started this kitchen table conversation, I think reporters and others would start covering this in a way so that they would go in a community and they would ask people, yeah, what do you think about this candidate's stance on digital privacy? And that might create a little of the dynamic so that eventually you might have this sort of rating system. Yeah, it, it's got me curious. Now I'm sitting here thinking I'd be I'd be curious to, to go back historically and even look at maybe some of the, the voting records of, of those, uh, you know, involved in privacy uh, regulations. Um, but we're getting off track a bit. So so tell us a, a little bit more about the, the, the book, if you would. So we, we've talked about some of the things that, that you feel are most passionate about, that, that you like to become a kitchen table conversation. What, what do you think is on the horizon? What do you think's next in, in the privacy conversation? Not, not today, not tomorrow, but maybe three, four, five years out. Well, let me just backtrack on a couple of other aspects I think are highly important. So right now in the COVID-19 environment and what I call post-pandemic, obviously there's a lot of focus on broadband. So we, we know that probably 20% of the country doesn't have broadband at the level that is established by the FCC, which is 25 megabits per second. And obviously the lack of broadband has all sorts of implications for working at home or having distance learning. And so there's a major push, including in a number of the legislative proposals for more funding to expand broadband capability. That's great. On the other hand, no one actually connects broadband with privacy. And so there is a way to say, yes, we want more broadband, but we also want more secure networks, or we want funding that will help people have a better sense of some of the privacy risks involved and maybe have 
funding for software or other things that might be helpful. So I, I think there's not really the connection that needs to be made right now in let's call the broadband conversation and the digital privacy conversation. And that's a conversation that's going to continue for the next few years because obviously you're not going to be able to expand broadband overnight. It's going to take a number of years and there are going to be different mechanisms. The other aspect is really the fact that we have about, actually about 10% of the country doesn't use the internet at all. And so part of it is how do we get those people to come into the tent? Because essentially a lot of the things that we're seeing in COVID-19 is that you really need to be online in order to survive now, in order to get public health information or work or have your kids go to school or do telehealth. And about 10% of the country, it breaks down into various demographic categories. So cost is one issue, but it's not the only issue. It's not the primary issue. So we know that 30% of people with less than a high school education are not online right now. And we know that 10% of the senior community, 65 and over, is not online. So again, we need to think nationally about how do we get everyone to be online for And that, of course, will implicate various privacy protections. But if they're not going to be online, privacy is really not an issue for them. It's very true. So I'm curious, uh, you know, after writing the book and putting it all together, what was the most eye-opening thing for you? Was there anything that kind of struck out to you that was like, Okay, this is a this is probably the biggest concern out of everything that I, I put in this book. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it's the biggest concern, but I think one of the eye-opening aspects is that at least in the United States, we look at this as a sort of a us versus private corporation issue. Yeah, and when you look in Europe, for example, Europe doesn't look at that quite as narrowly. Europe says data is data whether it's data generated by the government or by a not-for-profit or by a for-profit company. And so there's really this disconnect between our thinking and European thinking. And, of course, we see some of the impacts of that. So in California, for example, the California DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, obviously collects really sensitive information, Mm -hmm. everything from your address, obviously, uh, the images. And what do they do with that? Do you have any idea what they do with that? Well, they're not covered by CCPA. So you have no access to know that from a transparent level. It turns out for the past six years, the DMV in California has been selling that information to third-party providers, meaning credit agencies, Mm -hmm. data brokers, private investigators, and yet the public has no recourse at this point because government sort of has carved itself out of the picture. And so I think this is another fundamental aspect that we're going to have to deal with, which is whether or not we're going to look at data as data or whether we're going to segregate data as commercial data, or not-for-profit data, or government data. Mm-hmm. I tend to be of the broader view that data is data, and let you begin to say, we're only going to protect the 
privacy for certain types of data, it doesn't quite give you the comprehensive approach. I mean, we do have an existing Privacy Act in the United States, which does cover government data, but it's relatively limited and it's now over 40 years old. It really hasn't been updated. And so we also need to reconcile that old act, which covers government data, with any new act that might cover commercial data. You made a good point there. I don't know how this aligns, but usually California is ahead of everybody else with a lot of things, right? So what does that mean? Do you know much about everybody else? Um, does that mean everybody else is behind? So uh, on the East Coast, is, is that same situation happening or are there others that are ahead of what they're doing when they're selling that private information? Well, Illinois, for example. So Illinois has a new act, new law, which covers biometric information. And obviously the biometric information could be information that's gathered by government or mm-hmm. by the private sector. So this would be things like facial recognition images right. or fingerprints or other things that relate to biometric data. So to some extent, you could say Illinois may be a little ahead of the curve here because there are not that many jurisdictions that are looking at biometrics as part of this. They're looking at sort of the old-fashioned information that's being collected on websites. Right. And the other aspect is a number of them are not really looking at apps. They're looking more at websites at this point. And so just even from a technical standpoint, I think that legislation needs to be broadened. That's a good point. Um, There's one other area I did about very very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Which is assume that we have some sort of federal law or even CPPA, it's only as good as the enforcement. And, and typically, there, there are not enough resources that are allocated for enforcement. I'll give you a quick illustration. At the federal level, the Federal Trade Commission now is responsible for doing whatever privacy regulation we have in this country. There are a thousand people who were in the Bureau of Consumer Protection, which is the part of the FTC that handles that. Do you have any idea of how many people day-to-day deal with digital privacy issues? A thousand is the denominator. <laughs> Jesus. The numerator, the numerator is 40 people. So 40 people out of, a, out of a thousand handle this. And then you multiply that by how many people are online in this country. It's 275 million people and you could do any small calculation figuring if every one of those people had one privacy issue per year, we would have 275 million cases that would be handled by 40 people. Okay, so we don't, we don't, we haven't really gotten our arms around the enforcement aspect and we've seen in the enforcement so far of the GDPR that Europe is facing these challenges too. And these challenges are gonna become more acute because obviously government is gonna have a lot less money now to allocate because of our deficits and because they're gonna be spending money on public health and all of the post-pandemic activities. And so again, the question is, you can write a great law, but how are you going to enforce it? And particularly what resources? 
That is the question. <laughs> That's super interesting. I was, I kind of wanted to just personally ask you, you don't have to go too in depth, but um, talking offline, you, you show a lot of passion. Obviously you have a lot of experience um, in data privacy and compliance. Where, where did this all start for you? Like, where did you, where did the light bulb come on to, to kind of get the passion behind it? Well, I'm a lawyer by training and I had okay. great legal training. And when I was in law school, I certainly read some of the classic works in the area. Everyone in law school typically reads a very famous article that was done by Brandeis and Warren, mm-hmm. Brandeis who ultimately became a Supreme Court justice, which was literally the first uh, article written in the Harvard Law Review in the 1800s. And that article was called The Right to Privacy. And it was the first time that uh, legal thinkers began to think of this as a legal right. Uh, and then I was in law school at Berkeley, and the former dean, well before I was there, was a guy named William Prosser, who then became really the major legal thinker of the 20th century around privacy. And he developed a whole infrastructure for how people could sue for privacy, for violations of privacy. So I think just sitting in the classroom and reading some of these classic works. And then when I got to NTIA, I had the great benefit of working very closely with people in technology. So I learned a lot about how technology was developing. And so the privacy that Brandeis and Warren and Prosser were writing about is not the same privacy as computer. Yeah. So uh, clearly I, I had a pretty good understanding of the early development of computers. Awesome. So you, you mentioned you did an NPR interview back in January around the start of CCPA. What have you seen change since then? Well, obviously we now have regulations. So the law was written, but the law essentially said that regulations would be written by the California Attorney General, meaning the office. Mm-hmm. And so we had a process between January 1st, which is when the law took effect, and July, which is when the California Attorney General issued the regulations. And it wasn't until really the past few weeks that those regulations have actually been published. And so now, essentially, you can think about this as having police on the force now, out on the streets, dealing with these issues, where before they had sort of a code book, but there wasn't a lot of enforcement going on until the regulations were issued. And of course, now in November, we have Proposition 24 coming up. So Proposition 24 will potentially add to CCPA and perhaps change it quite dramatically because one of the critical aspects of that would be creating a separate digital privacy agency within California. So we no longer be in the Attorney General's office. And that again follows the lead of Europe all the countries of the EU have a data protection authority. That's the agency that essentially enforces privacy. That, that would be the change you're, you're meaning? That's That would be one of the major changes. Wow. Which is yeah. an entirely separate agency. And of course, when it's administered by the California Attorney General's office, that gets back to some of these enforcement issues because that office handles everything 
and you have to figure out how many lawyers in the office are physically going to be able to handle X amount of cases. And of course, the population of California is 40 million. So if everyone had one issue a year, that's 40 million. So how do you feel about the right for consumers not to just own their data, but maybe to sell it, right? To, to be able to monetize their own data in the same way that uh, other platforms are monetizing it. Well, we had a presidential campaign, Andrew Yang, who had that as part of his platform, uh, the idea of monetizing data. Uh, what's going on now in Europe, which is very interesting, is a discussion really which came from Tim Berners-Lee, obviously created the World Wide Web, but the notion of, of having a digital trust bank. The concept there is that people would have their data go into a bank, and that bank essentially, like a physical bank, would have some monetization. So when a company wanted to withdraw from that, there would be some sort of payment mechanism that would go to the individual. And the important aspect of this digital trust bank would be something that's called fiduciary duty, like a physical bank. A bank essentially can't just give out your money to anyone. There have to be controls there, and obviously they have a fiduciary responsibility to hold your money. Digital trust banks would have the same type of legal funds to hold your data. So in a world where Andrew Yang's vision to uh, data ownership and, and monetization comes to fruition, uh, what, what is it that we could possibly do to get ahead of, of any you know, disparities in, uh, in the value of data um, you know, from a socioeconomic standpoint? Well, I think you raise an interesting point, which is socioeconomic. We're now in a major, longstanding uh, conversation nationally about uh, equity, about discrimination, Obviously, that conversation is going to continue, and I think it will eventually intersect with some of the conversations around digital privacy. Uh, there's some work now being done in the economic community about how do you calculate the cost of data if you were going to have a system like Andrew Yang's system. Well, whatever that calculation is going to be, you can imagine that it's not going to be the same for everybody certain information will be more valuable. We know that already. We know that certain zip codes are more valuable. Certain buying habits are more valuable. So then the question becomes, will disparities be created based on that sort of system, which help perpetuate some of the other disparities in society? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one that we've got a long way to go before we see it play out, but it's almost inevitable, isn't it? I think so, but I think you're right. It's going to be a long conversation, and obviously there are more fundamental issues that are going to have to be resolved first. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the last segment, I just wanted to see, Stuart, if you had anything, any takeaways um, or anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to bring to surface before we wrap things up. Yeah, uh, a couple. Obviously, we're talking about broad, comprehensive privacy legislation, but I think it's possible if we don't get that, that there are pieces of legislation which could be enacted, which would be helpful even if you didn't have comprehensive legislation. So I can give you a couple of examples. So one, yeah. is, uh, one is the area of, of revenge porn, 
we have a congressman from California, Katie Hill, who was forced to resign because her ex-husband posted various images of her. And at the end of the day, they became too embarrassing politically. She had to resign. But it turns out we don't have a federal revenge porn law. We have only 41 states and the District of Columbia have their own versions of a revenge porn law, and they're all over the place. In some cases, it's a felony. In some cases, it's a misdemeanor. In some cases, you get a fine. In some cases, you don't. In some cases, it's a lot of money. In some cases, it's not. So it's, it seems that this is a, an issue, and particularly when you tie it into areas of sexual discrimination. Others, obviously, revenge porn can be for either gender, but I think disproportionately it's been impacting women at this point. So something like a federal revenge porn law, I think would be something that probably could achieve bipartisan support and again, would not need to be terribly controversial. I think you would just develop a, a national standard for what this is. So that, that, would, be, that would be one quick example. The second example, uh, Senator Blackburn from Tennessee introduced a bill last year, uh, which is called the Browser Act. And it was really just a notification. It was letting, basically making sure that people were notified about what data was being collected about them. Now, that doesn't necessarily solve everything, but clearly as a first and essential step, it seems that transparency would be helpful. And if you had that, going back to the DMV example I gave you in California, it would mean that you would know that that information is being collected. The, the wrinkle that I've thought of and actually have discussed uh, with people in, on Capitol Hill is moving beyond our world of print because basically when we pull up a website now, you know, you get those pages and pages and pages which people accept of the policy that the company has, which tells you everything, but no one's going to read through. I, I think we should have a requirement that all of those policies be put in video format as well. So you could literally not just read through everything, but there would be a button that you could click and someone would come on and explain it to you. And I think that's the world we live in today. It's a world of video and conversation. And to think that the only way that we're notifying people is just through text. Obviously, text is needed for legal purposes, but in terms of what could actually inform people, it might be helpful to have some supplement like video. That's an area that's going to require addressing like yesterday. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. So let's, let's go into, unless Gabe, did you have anything before we go into the last segment? No, no, I, I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's a lot for our, our, our listeners to chew on. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of really valuable stuff, Stuart. And, before we get to the end, thank you for, for coming on. And this is, this has been great. So I want to get to know a little bit more about you. So what's your favorite movie uh, that's related to privacy? Did you find one? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but before all of the history I told you about, so I started my life as a filmmaker. Okay. And so I have a deep background and, and spent a number of years, not just making films, but also 
studying film history and criticism. And so films have been a passion of mine. I continue to watch movies constantly. Uh, in fact, when we had movie theaters, when we go to a theater, I had a regimen where I had to have, go to a theater once, at least once a week to watch a movie in the theater. So I've never had fewer than 52 movies that I watch in a theater on a yearly basis. And I <laughs> listen to all, the, all of that stuff. So film is very much part of my passion. And obviously now there are a variety of interesting films dealing with privacy. And I'm happy to recommend, you know, a few of them. Uh, I would say the masterpiece level, which is probably, you know, where to start. I think there are two great masterpieces. One is a movie called The Conversation, which was done by Francis Coppola. And it was actually done right after the Godfather movie. And he wanted to have a sort of a smaller personal movie with Gene Hackman. Gene mm -hmm. Hackman plays a uh, sort of a private investigator who is basically listening in and doing surveillance. And then the tables are turned and he gets surveilled. It's a great, very intense movie. So that, that I think, is the American masterpiece. And then at the European level, uh, a movie which won the Academy Award about 10 or 15 years ago, which is called The Lives of Others. It's a uh, German movie, and it deals with the Stasi, the secret police in East Germany, and their surveillance, obviously, when there was in East Germany, West Germany. Again, it's a, a very taut, dramatic movie. And, and then there are, you know, there are others in the variety of genres. Uh, Will Smith and, again, Gene Hackman. Uh, we're in a movie called Enemy of the State, which deals mm -hmm. more with NSA-type information, uh, more on the comedy. And Jim Carrey was in a movie called The Truman Show, which great is movie. about a great movie, but he's living in a community which basically is recorded all the time. So there are cameras all around. That's very relevant in mm -hmm. terms of our world of facial recognition. And then, of course, the Steven Spielberg film with Tom Cruise Minority Report, mm -hmm. which is based on this dystopian vision in the future where people's, people are identified for crimes that they have not yet committed. Awesome. That's a lot more than I even thought of up top of my head, but now you've given me some, some good ones to think about. Um, obviously, I, my first thought was Snowden, the movie Snowden, which was really interesting. Gabe, you got any? Uh, certainly covered my, my top ones, although... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I think there are a couple of sleeper ones in there also, though. But I don't know how good they would be. So, <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not covering documentaries. Obviously, there are a number of documentaries right. that are out there. Oh yeah, for sure and, for sure. and and certainly the Snowden documentary that won the Academy Award, Citizen Four. These are great documentaries. But in terms of of dramatic films, the yeah. ones I talked about are probably at the top of the list. That's a solid. I'm going to have to go back and watch a few of those. It's been a while, like Minority Report. It's uh, yeah. It's it's one of those where, you know, thought crimes being prosecuted, like we're not that far off from it. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, legislative things that, that need to, uh, that we need to address. It would be good if someone just outright came out and say right now, like, we're just going to outlaw that. Like, let's not wait till we get there. Let's just state that fact right now. Put it on the books. Thought crime is never going to be a thing. <laughs> so, Stuart, what was your very first job? 
this would be a job after I graduated all of my institutions or jobs. I, I mean, I had a variety of summer jobs and, uh, yeah, you know, just your very first job that you ever did. Well, I, uh, I, I worked in a, uh, playground in the community I grew up in. So I was a, basically a counselor in a, yeah. com- a community playground program. Uh, but then the year after I did that, I applied for a grant from a humanities group and got it and started a film institute where I started oh, cool. to train the kids I was working with on the playground on how to make films and then started a film festival. And again, the film part played in. There you go. That's awesome. Um, what is your biggest phobia? Oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, I don't really have a lot of phobias. I mean, uh, I'm not phobic in terms of space or in terms of seeing blood or that sort of thing. Obviously, I fly a lot or did fly a lot. So I I, I don't have a real lot of phobias that I can think of. Nothing you're scared of that you know? Not that I can think of. Stuart Brotman is 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 untouchable. He's a wall. (laughs) Are you not afraid of thought crimes? Because I'm afraid of thought crimes. (laughs) There we go. That, that, that is my level. Phobia. My phobia is thought crime. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, do you collect anything? And if you do, is it weird or interesting enough to share on here? Well, I don't want to walk around my office here, but yes, I, <laughs> I have a lot of memorabilia. I collect a lot of uh, sports items. I have mm-hmm. uh, Mickey Mantle baseballs here and autographed baseballs by some of the leading people. I collect a lot of comic art, mm-hmm. original comic art. So uh, the thing's not particularly weird. And as you see behind me, I collect classic radios. And so see I that. have a whole collection of them. And those are those are the radios with the lights built into them, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yep. Uh, well, you mentioned comic books. So what's your favorite uh, superhero? Superman has always been my favorite. And I think because I started, I'm, I'm much more of a DC Comics person mm-hmm. than a Marvel person. I know they're sort of two different cultural groups. I have gotten uh, acclimated to Marvel. I do like it, but I think at the end of the day, a good Superman or a good Batman, I will just show you here. Oh, yeah. There we go. Just very, very quickly. There he is. Oh, that's awesome. So that, that, this is an original uh, Batman and Robin. Wow. That's classic. So I'll tell you, one of the founders of our, uh, of our organization is a huge comic book fan. And he tunes into the show. He's just going to be super jelly right now. <laughs> did, you, did you see the, the teaser for the new uh, the Batman that's coming out? I did. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I, I am too. And... Uh, you know, any of those. And I think what's been great is Christopher Nolan really brought the oh, yeah. back because there was a period when George Clooney came along and Val Kilmer and... Well, those uh, were just too... They were too silly. They, they were. Yeah. And and Batman is a dark story. And obviously, I think, I think people now can accept that. And I think in the future, certainly post-pandemic, people will understand dark stories a lot easier. Oh yeah, I, I I know that it's kind of cliche, but the Dark Knight is by far one of the best movies, and it could be because of the Joker. Obviously, you always have to have Joker with Batman. It's peanut butter and jelly when it comes to Batman. 
there always has to be Joker. And I think that's why that movie did so well. And obviously the actor that played Joker was, he was phenomenal, but man, that movie just, I can't, you can't get tired of it. Every time it starts with the guys coming, they shoot the the thing into the window and they're the music playing. It's just so everything's perfect about that movie. And, and who would have thought that two actors who played Joker would receive Academy Awards for that? Right. It's, it's amazing where that it's come um, from the, the sillier, like bang, boom, pow. <laughs> but uh, that's awesome. So um, if you could be any kind of food, what food would you be? Oh, I'd be ice cream. That, there you that, go. That, that <laughs> <laughs> Is that because it's your favorite food or just you feel like you just would be uh, Everyone lo- loves ice cream, and ice cream makes people happy, and it's satisfying. And obviously, there are loads of flavors, and there are loads of things you can do with ice cream. So you can never get tired of ice cream. It's very true. I think Gabe Gabe is more of a what are you more of a frozen yogurt kind of guy? I'm a sorbet man. Get it right. Sorbet. <laughs> but it's frozen. It's always it's, the ice treats. It's ice treats are always treat good. of the gods. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And, you know, I, I spent a lot of my career in New England, and ironically, New England as a region is the most uh, ice cream consumption area in the country. People would assume when it gets really cold, people don't like ice cream, but it's actually exactly the opposite. People in New England love ice cream when it's cold. I, I love ice cream no matter what. It doesn't matter if it's cold or hot. We're in Florida, so it's usually hot most of the time. So right, Exactly. Um, well, anyways, uh, Stuart, thanks so much. This is, this has been awesome. I think really insightful, a lot of great information. Um, I know that, uh, do you have any places on social media that, uh, you want me to be able to share on the show and in the notes for everybody to follow you? And obviously we're going to give the Amazon link to the book. Anything else you want to share on here for all the listeners? Well, um, um, my Twitter handle is at Stuart and Brotman, but I, I tend to use LinkedIn more as my primary social media. So that might be the place to, to follow me. And you've probably seen I've been posting pretty regularly there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for what you do and for coming on the show and sharing your, your story and, and for the book. I'm excited to, to get some copies to, to the company. Tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all around decent guy. Until next time.